Thank you, Hannah. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 6. If you have a prayer slip or a visitor slip, if you'd pass those over, we'd love to grab them and um, collect them and pray for you in this coming week. The believer's union with Christ. Jesus Christ came into this world that we might have life and have it to the full. And this newness of life means that that believers are a new creation in him. Behold, if anyone is in Christ, old things uh, have passed away. Behold, all things become new. To be in Jesus Christ means that we're under a new covenant. And it's the only covenant that is powerful to save is the new covenant established in his blood. We're, we're called to cultivate new thoughts. We're headed in a new direction. We're developing new goals and ambitions. We're called to develop new friends through the body. And we're bound for a new destiny where our citizenship is in heaven. So this morning, we're going to look at a text of scripture, Romans 6, one of the most glorious aspects of being a Christian and walking in this joy is that we are in union with Christ, the believer's union in Christ. Nothing is more fundamental or more vital to the Christian life than union with Christ and what flows from it. The work of salvation is a demonstration of God's sovereign grace in our life. I thought of Daniel Whittle who, who, who says in his hymn, I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he has made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love has redeemed me for his own, but I know whom I have believed and it's in him. So this is God's doing to be in Christ. I find it interesting that the, the Apostle Paul never, never mentions the word Christian in talking about believers. Uh, many, many times, he, the, the, the phrase that he uses is, we're in Christ. Look with me, keep your finger here in Romans 6 and just turn the page uh, to the next book, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. He says to this church, for consider your calling, brothers. I'm in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. Consider your calling. Who's calling? God's calling on your life in salvation. Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose... Um, what is, what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So when you look at how God is assembling and gathering a people for his name, don't expect to be among the movers and the shakers. God chose what is low and despised, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast before God. To be in Christ is not something we brag about. Look at all the humility I demonstrated because I'm a Christian and so many other people aren't. Look how spiritually insightful I am because I'm in Christ and others aren't interested. Notice what he says in verse 30, and because of him, because of God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So it is written, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in whom? The Lord. The Lord is our salvation. 
The Lord is our all in all. He's our wisdom. He's our righteousness. He's our sanctification. He's our redemption. And he is our hope and glory. In chapter 16 of Romans, if we turn the page back to the left, uh, the last chapter in Romans, Romans 16, Paul never, again, never uses the word Christian to refer to the believer. Rather, he uses many times over the phrase, in Christ, in Christ. And he's closing out this letter to the Romans. And he's saying, mentions a, a number of people that were close to him. He mentions uh, Andronicus and Junia, who were in Christ before me. This is verse 7. They were in Christ before me. They were believers before me. In verse 8, my beloved in the Lord, Impliatus, our fellow worker in Christ, as Urbanus in verse 9. Verse 10, who is approved in Christ, Apelles. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet these workers in the Lord. So this is a phrase he uses many times over, which references our union with Christ. So what does it mean to be in Christ? Certainly begins with repentance and faith. Uh, being born again by the Spirit where we see our need for Him. We're aware of our sin and how that alienates our relationship with God, how that adds to the brokenness of our lives. And to be in Christ means that Christ represents us. It is said that our elected leaders represent us. I know that cheers you up. Their actions speak for us. Christ represents those who place their faith in him, he represents us. He's our representative. He's the second Adam, the scripture says. If we are united to Christ, then we are united to him and all that he has done for us his sinless life, his active obedience, his passive obedience, and his death on the cross. We were crucified with Christ, Paul said in Galatians 2. We were buried with him. We read here in Romans 6, verse 4. We were buried with him. And we've been seated in the heavenlies with Christ, he writes in Ephesians 2. One of the best books I've read on the Christian life in recent years has been Rankin Wilburn's Union with Christ. And he writes, when we're in Christ, every part of Christ's life, not only is death but every part of it has significance for us. We share in his life and obedience, his death and resurrection, even his ascension. We participate in another's victory, his victory on our behalf. All that is his becomes ours. Think about that for a moment. (laughs) Think about how this would motivate you and I with regard to our walk with Christ. We participate in his victory. His hand of blessing is upon us. Wilburn captures the weight of this relationship. Becoming a Christian is not simply coming to believe certain things about God that are outside of us. Uh, And being a a Christian is not simply about what you do or don't do. A lot of people view Christianity negatively, but it's a bunch of lists of don't do this, don't do that. That's not, it's a life of faith. Faith on The reality of who Christ is. He really came to earth. He really walked on earth. He really died on the cross. He really rose from the dead. Christianity is a life of faith, but it's also a life of faith. And we've been grafted into God's own life, invited to participate in the fellowship of God. Truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. 
So to the text, I want to dive in. And I, I just have to confess, trying to understand Romans 6 this week, has been really challenge, uh, challenging for your pastor. Uh, and so I'm praying this will, will be something that edifies us and challenges us as we've moved from justification by faith, which is the foundation, we add nothing to that, to sanctification, meaning living out the Christ life, Christ life, where we participate with God and cooperate with Him as we're being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So notice with me first, Walking in newness of life. That was his point at verse 4. We've been, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. We too might walk in newness of life. All the new things I mentioned on the front end of this message. New creation, new covenant, new goals, new friends, new outlook, new worldview. All things become new in him. And we begin to view all of life through him. We're to walk in newness of life. And yet Paul is saying, we need to live for Jesus now. You and I need to live every day as believers in him for Jesus now. Look at what he says in verse five. For if we have been united with him in in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And what he's making the point all the way through is because Jesus Christ has risen, The power that raised Jesus from the grave is the power that will work in our life to overcome sin and to walk in obedience. Verse 5 supports the newness of life because Christ was raised from the dead. And so we're united with him in his death. In Christ, we died to sin, yet we still deal with the repercussions of it. We'll talk about that in a moment. Because we are incorporated into Christ, his death becomes ours. We died in him. And so Paul mentions that, you know, at baptism, at conversion, in baptism, uh, surrendering our life to him, baptism is the picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Christ becomes ours because we share the benefits of his death by virtue of being united with him by faith. So this... Grace cannot possibly lead believers to sin anymore. How can you who died to sin live any longer in it? Dead men don't sin. Dead dead people don't sin. We died to that. We're to move on with the motivation that I'm to surrender my life to him. Not only are we united with him in his death, we're united with him in his resurrection. Again, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, may this give you hope. I just... Every Sunday, I'm aware of how struggles come into our lives. We respond to things that, I wish I wouldn't have said that. I wish I wouldn't have done that. I wish I wouldn't have thought that. I wish I wouldn't have looked at that. And we come together and we wonder, what hope do I have? I say I'm a Christian, and these things keep piling up in my life. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power God gives to you as a believer to overcome sin to overcome it, to be victorious of it, over it. Um, in Philippians 3, one of my favorite statements of Paul, and it's really like he's declaring his new allegiance in Christ. And Philippians chapter 3 is his resume, where he talks about being from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a, uh, from, from Israel, from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. As far as religious cred- credentials, nobody could touch Paul. 
And he says, I consider all these things, this incredible, impeccable resume, I consider them all dung, a manure pile, in order that I might gain Christ. What do you mean, Paul? You've got a pretty good record here. You mean you count it as a manure pile? Oh, yes, because it doesn't save. My self-righteousness doesn't save me. I was mean. I was hate-filled. He was at the stoning of Stephen, and it says in Scripture that, the, that those who were stoning Stephen, who gave a clarion word, a message to a hard-hearted people who plugged their ears and gnashed their teeth. They took him outside the city and stoned him. And the text tells us that they cast their robes at the feet of one named Saul of Tarsus. I imagine he had a sinister grin on his face on that day. I count it all dung. But then he says in verse 10, that I may know him. In the power of his resurrection, having fellowship with his sufferings, being conformed into the image of his death, that we may know him in this way. And so first, in verse 5, walking in newness of life, living for Jesus now, in light of his death, in light of his resurrection, we're being conformed into his image. Living out the Christian life is what he's moved on to here with regard to sanctification. Notice with me, secondly... In verses 6 and 7, he talks about being set free from sin slavery. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin, justified actually from sin. So John Stott, in my reading, who is a faithful British commentator, John Stott uses this illustration. Our biography, the biography of our lives, our biography is written in two volumes. Volume one is the story of the old man, the old you, the BC days, the before Christ, the old self before conversion. Volume two is the story of the man, the new self, of me after I was made a new creation in Christ. Volume one of my biography ended with the judicial death of the old self. I died with Christ. I was a sinner. I deserved to die. I did die. I received my, um, my deserts and my substitute. And that's what Jesus was when he died on the cross, our substitute. And he's the only one qualified to be our all-sufficient Savior with whom I become one. Volume two of my biography opened with my resurrection. My old life having finished, a new life to God has begun. I'm alive to him. I'm alive to him. I think we often walk in defeat and in despair because we forget our position in Christ. Now he says here in the text, our old self, that is the old unsaved life that is behind us. If you're in Christ, old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. As it should be. Someone proclaiming to be a follower of Christ where there's no change in their life, that's suspect. 
Then he mentions the body of sin in verse 6. The body of sin might be brought to nothing. So is that the same as the old self? No, I believe the body of sin, when he says it might be brought to nothing, um, it refers to the Christian's continued battle with sin. While we may have died with Christ, we continue to deal with the ongoing vestiges of sin in our life, which must be dealt with. So this is at the heart of understanding sanctification, sometimes referred to as the old nature. How long will we have to battle with that? As long as we draw breath in this fallen world. But it is the road to glorification. Scripture presents justification, sanctification, and glorification, which means heaven, by which these temporal bodies will receive a glorious resurrection body, but not yet. That's often the way it is in the Bible. We read of Jesus reigning over the world. That, that is true. The kingdom of God has come, but not yet. And that kind of tension is there for the believer too. Our position in Christ, the power to overcome sin and, and the failures that plague us is found in Jesus Christ. And one day that shall be made perfect, but not yet. So what do we do? Throw up our hands and say it's no use? That's not the call of scripture. We're called to run the race. We're called to live the life. We're called to put off that which displeases God. This body of sin we contend with, no longer slave to sin, he says in the text. We've been taken out of Adam and placed in Christ. The Bible references Adam, the first Adam. In Adam all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And Jesus Christ is mentioned as, as the second Adam in 1 Corinthians 15, so that the pull of sin might be robbed of its power and delivered from sin's bondage. So there is hope for you and I as we struggle with sin. You know what I've noticed in my life? Just in walking with the Lord now over 35 years, saved at the age of 20, loving my sin at the time. I, we have a, a picture that was given by a friend that's in the entrance to our home. It's a park bench. And I remember at the age of 20 really bottoming out and really saying, oh, this is, you know, this is, the life I'm living is not right. And I remember going to that park bench in Central Florida, sitting on that bench and saying, there's gotta be more to life than what I'm living. And for the first time, I can remember really calling out to God to move in me and to show himself to me, which led me to the Bible, which led me to a place where I could hear it taught because I didn't, I, you know, I, I know where the Ten Commandments were. I know where, where Psalm, Psalms was in the middle. I knew that much, but not much more. And beginning to hear the word of God taught to me that God has a redeeming message through Christ and that there's hope for me, and there's hope for you. And so what I've noticed in my walk from the age of 20 to now I'm older, <laughs> you know, that the Lord, what, with struggles of the heart, you know, struggles with sin. Yes, your pastor's a sinner. I'm in desperate need for the grace of Jesus Christ 
every day of my life. So pray for me. Just this week, we've seen in the news a major evangelical pastor playing around online and getting in trouble and the reproach and the, his words, the embarrassment and the shame that come with it. But I've noticed in walking with the Lord that struggles come and you, you wonder, how long am I going to have to deal with this one, Lord? How long am I, I going to have to bear with this? Will there ever come a time where the temptation eases a bit? And we think as we go, days turns into, turn into weeks and months turn into years. And we wonder, Lord, how many times am I going to have to confess this? as often as I do it. And what I've noticed by God's grace, as we present ourselves to Him, to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, and we continue to walk by faith and seek to obey Him and serve Him, that lo and behold, there comes a time where, you know, I'm really not dealing with that to the level I've dealt with that before. God's giving me help to overcome temptations that I had as a young man and they're not there anymore. Oh, there's others. (laughs) But those, thank you, Lord. Thank you for giving me a heart that wants to serve you. I I, I praise you for this deliverance of, of besetting sins in my life. But we don't get that casually. That's a, that's a full-on effort to present ourselves to Him every day of our life. And then it really becomes down to the nub of the matter. I don't know if I want to do that. Well, there you have really what's at stake. Am I going to live my life for myself? Or am I going to live my life for the glory of Jesus Christ? And that is the call to salvation. New everything. New goals. New heart. New friends. New passions. And a future hope. And so as we look at this issue of the, this body of sin, what has been defeated is not the presence of sin, but the mastery of sin over us. And some things drag so stubbornly in our lives, it's worth every ounce of energy we give to to put it off. Thomas Schreiner wrote, from this we can conclude that Romans 6 teaches that believers are not free from the presence of sin, but they are free from its power, its tyranny, its mastery, and its dominion. So sometimes we live in a gap Right? Some have called it the gospel gap, where we have this wonderful, glorious position in Christ, and then we have the reality of how we're living Monday through Friday. And we wonder, wow, how will that ever be bridged? The answer ultimately is when we're in His presence, but now we're called to present ourselves to Him. Right now, I would imagine at this stage in the message, for those who are in tune with what this text is teaching, you're, you're saying, man, I, I, need, I need to give myself back to you, Lord. I'm drifting. I need to turn to you. I need to rest in you. I need to claim your promises. Now, I want to maybe add a, 
a warning here because we've just spent months and months on being justified by faith. That there's no way to be made right with God apart from faith in Jesus Christ. But now we're looking at, I'm gonna, I gotta present my, I, I gotta present myself to, to Christ. I gotta present myself to God as a living sacrifice. I need to pursue obedience and put things off that need to be put off. And there's a danger of mingling justification and sanctification here to where, yeah, I'm saved by grace after all that I do. That's a dangerous error. We're saved by grace alone, not after what we do. The, the mark of true saving faith is that we have, we begin to bear fruit. We begin to live in obedience. But that, dangle, that danger of mingling our justification with, with sanctification. Justification is the power that gives us uh, in this walk with Christ as we seek to walk in holiness. The foundation of sanctification is justification. And it really go, helps us to, to go to the root of the matter. By faith in Jesus Christ, I'm reminded that that his, his death is sufficient in my deepest despair, in my deepest guilt, that I look to him and there's no sin that I could ever commit that would be greater than his grace to forgive and, and to sustain me. Sin holds us in bondage, practicing a daily, a practical daily keeping us from doing what is right and and through the, the power of the gospel, that has been severed to walk in newness of life. So this sanctification is a lifelong journey. And if you would allow me to mention John Newton again, we mention him often. He was the author of Amazing Grace, the greatest hymn in history, I think without dispute. Maybe some would dispute it, but I mean, it just such a part of us. Um, John Newton, if you're familiar with his background, was a foul-mouthed, drunken slave trader. And as a young man, he, w he was a sailor with an awful reputation. And in 1748, Newton cried out to God, not, not for the first time, but he you know, found religion. He had had false efforts in the past where he had tried to claim religion, but this time something real happened in his heart and Newton's life began to change. He stopped drinking, he stopped gambling, he began to pray and read the Bible, yet he continued in the slave trade for a number of years. The words of amazing grace can, can sound like change in the, in the Christian life is immediate. I once was lost, but now I'm found, all is new and there are no problems anymore. But in Newton's life and in ours, it can be a journey between now I see and seeing clearly. Newton wrote of his struggles with sin and temptation as a believer. At the end of his life, Newton wrote, I hope it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. What's the point? 
40 years between his conversion and his conviction regarding the slave trade. 40 years to do its deep work in his heart. That's, that's sobering, isn't it? Lord, help me to see what I need to see and follow you. Notice thirdly, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. That's verses 8 through 11. He says in verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Uh, By the way, could I go back to John Newton for a moment? (laughs) Just, you know, by today's standards, he's canceled. He he doesn't have anything to say to anybody unless you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Where old things have passed away and behold, all things become new. It is amazing grace, and we should celebrate that. So considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to God, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And he continues on through this section in verse 11, so you you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. So one of the things that I would encourage us today is, regardless of what struggles we may, may be facing today, we would say, Lord, I'm alive to you. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And so I think it would be helpful for you and I to remind ourselves of this union with Christ, this position with Christ that we have by faith and by his grace. And that is that the old sinful you is decisively dead. You can't bring it to the altar. You can't pay for your your sin, it's decisively dead already through the finished work of Jesus Christ. You and I need to develop a fresh hatred towards our sin. Not nurse it, not call it by something else to deal with it. Lord, deliver me from gossip. Lord, deliver me from a lustful heart. Deliver me from breaches of integrity. Deliver me from a lying tongue. And on and on and on it goes, right? So if we're not taking serious consideration, Lord, I want to attack that. I want that to be, uh, I, I want to demonstrate a hatred towards that and not call it something else is key to overcoming it. And to really find that our power is in a deep commitment and allegiance to God and putting all of our mind and heart and body at his disposal for righteousness. In the morning, saying, Lord, here I am, I'm yours. All I am and hope to be, I want to serve you today. Oh, Lord, I love you and I want to live my life for you. Please help me to pray in the Spirit because you know what I'll face today and where to emphasize my prayers. But if we're always shuffling and deflecting and never really taking into account, what is God wanting to get rid of in my life? Chances are it'll hang around a lot longer than you want it to. So let me ask some hard questions right now. What if I do sin as a believer? The one who is in Christ remembers 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, 
We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Those, those verses were written to believers. What do I do when I sin, Pastor? Acknowledge it. Confess it. Call out to God. Yeah, but I had to do it yesterday. I don't care if you had to do it the rest of your life. I don't know another way to deal with it. And confession is a beautiful word. The Greek word is homologia. It means to say the same thing as. To say the same thing as. Lord, I want to say the same thing about my sin that you say about it. I acknowledge it. I don't redefine it. I don't pass it off. I don't give excuses. Lord, I want to be right with you. He's faithful and just. Do you think he's hassled when you talk to him about your failures? That's exactly where he wants you to go, to him. That's where the action is, by the way. God wants us to come to his throne of grace, as Hebrews tells us, that we might receive mercy. The fool's errand is when you try to hide it and, and blame shift and do your own thing. That's a foolish That's a foolish action. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. We have nowhere to go but forward, right? Our position in Christ is secure. The true believer says, look, I don't have anywhere to go but forward. Okay, another question. What, what if I go back to my old life? What if I say, well, you know, my time in the church, that went well. I met some good friends and... I like my old life. I want to go do what I want to do. I don't like the regiment. James Boyce states it plainly. If that's the way you think, you need to know if you're a true believer, it will not work. It won't work. In the same way an adult trying to be a child again, can he do it? He can act childlike, though it is dishonoring to him and an embarrassment. An adult can behave in a childlike manner, but an adult cannot be a child. Similarly, if you are a true Christian, you cannot return to sin in the same way you were in it previously. You can sin, you and I do, but it's, it's not the same. The true believer runs to Christ. If nothing else, you cannot enjoy sin as you did before. And you will not even be able to do it convincingly. You will be like Peter trying to swear that he didn't know Jesus. After having spent three years in Jesus' school, people will say, but surely you're one of his disciples. What do we say to an adult who is acting like childlike? We say, why don't you just grow up? right? That's exactly what Romans 6.11 means. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God, alive to Him. Lord, I'm yours. I've been purchased with your blood and righteousness. My life has meaning and purpose in you alone. What a fool's errand to try to find joy and peace apart from you. It won't work. It won't work. Secondly, God will stop you. 
Oh, there he goes, playing the judgment card. Fair enough. It won't work. God will stop you. God will not stop you from sinning, but he will stop you from continuing in it. Either he will make your life so miserable that you will beg God to get you out of it, or God will put an end to your life. That's what happened to some of the Corinthians. They were playing around with the Lord's Supper and eating it in an unworthy way. And Paul says, for this reason, some of you have died. Capital punishment in the family of God. Sin leading to death. I don't know what that is. I had a man come to my office years ago, absolutely distraught, fearful that he had committed a sin that led unto death. I said, man, I've got good news for you. (laughs) I don't think you've committed that sin because those who commit that sin don't care. Rise and walk in newness of life. God will stop you. There is a sin unto death. There is a discipline in the family of God. Number three, if you do return to the life you lived before coming to Christ and are able to continue in it, you're not saved. Well, what right do you have to say that? On biblical grounds. There's no biblical assurance for such an attitude, for such a life. Some may say, wait a minute. You know, I, I, I said the prayer. I walked the aisle. My mother said I was a Christian. Brother so-and-so told me I was saved. It doesn't matter. You're not living for him. You have no desire for him. You have no hunger for him at all. And now you want to go and live the way you want to live? How can you, in your right mind, think you're in a saving relationship with him? 1 John 2.19, my favorite tongue twister in the Bible. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they would have been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out to really show what was manifest in their heart, that they were not of us. One of the most gripping passages describing this situation is Hebrews 12, where the writer of Hebrews says in verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which you will not see the Lord. So there's a holiness, there's a sanctification that's required in true salvation that leads ultimately to glory. I just want to receive Jesus, live the way I want to live, and get the goodies at the end. It doesn't work that way. You're not your own in Christ. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. He goes on to say, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness would spring up in your life. Don't fall short of the grace of God, allowing bitterness to spring up in your life and causing you trouble, and by it, many become defiled. And then he goes, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Now, that's a whole lesson in and of itself. Esau, the older of the twins, Esau and Jacob, he came out first, older by a few minutes, 
But God said when the babies were in the womb, the older will serve the younger. And so we read the twisted story in Genesis of how Esau sold his birthright, lived for the flesh, lived for the moment. And the writer of Hebrews describes his life in this way. For you know that afterward, when he sold his birthright for a bowl of chili, we know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He was rejected. By whom? By God. There was no, there was no repentance in his heart. He was rejected. For he found no chance to repent. Some think, well, you know, I'll just live. I'll sow my wild oats now. I'll live the way I want to live now. And then later when I'm good and ready, I'm going to repent. There may come a day when you can't repent. What do you mean? I'll do it of my own free will. You won't have the heart for it. No one repents apart from the grace of God. Don't presume on something you don't have the power to pull off. Esau found no chance to repent. Get this. Though he sought it with tears. Tears are not a reliable evidence of a true working of God. You, you could be in this assembly. We could sing Amazing Grace, the hymn we've just referenced, and have tears coming down your face. But if you're cheating on your wife, it's a sham. Cry all day. But if it's not met with repentance and turning to God and true faith and trust in Him alone, it's a sham. I think with the cultural winds blowing, with the world as it is, enough with religious games. Enough. I'm either going to follow Jesus Christ or I'm not. And I pray you would. That you would enter by the narrow way. For the the way is wide and, and it's broad that leads to destruction. And many there are who are on that road. But narrow is the way that leads to life. And few there are who find it. I pray that by His grace and for His glory, you would find it today. And you would make haste to turn to Him with all your heart. Would you bow with me in prayer? As we close this service today, it really is about surrender. To surrender to God, to surrender to Christ, what he did on the cross, what he's done through his resurrection, it's extended to you this morning, right now in real time. You mean if I turn my life over to him, he'll hear me? You mean if I call upon me, uh, call, call upon him, he will hear me? Uh, the scripture says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is that where you are right now? Call out to him. Maybe you're saying, this is all so new to me. I don't know much of anything. I sure understand that. That's how my walk with him began. And you begin to learn and you begin to grow and you begin to open the Bible for yourself and you begin to allow it to speak into your life. Maybe you're coming to terms with things that need to go in your life if you're going to be faithful to Christ. His desire is that you be conformed into his image, which requires sanctification. No sanctification, no glory. 
and it flows from a saving relationship with him. Father, in these moments, I pray that you would give grace to follow through on what our hearts are saying, what our minds are saying, based upon your truth, and that you would receive the glory and the closing out of this service in Jesus' name, amen.